Welcome to The Curiosity of A Child Episode 41 It's been a while since we've done our last episode, hasn't it? It is, yeah, uh, because we've been away to London It was really good, went to all the big museums, didn't we? Mm-hmm, that was really fun, um, it was only a couple of days But my feet ached after all the walking round Yeah, you did really well um, I forget how big it is when you leave this little island and go somewhere else mm-hmm. um, But unfortunately when we came back, we, uh, we had something, didn't we? Covid. Yeah, which we've managed to avoid up until now, but um, yeah, we had Covid, so that's why we're late. Um, well, it's International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Arr. <laughs> <laughs> Very good impression. And we've actually got a story of a pirate for you today, and uh, it's been said that he had an exquisite mind. So he's not your regular pirate. And the story that we're going to tell today is of a man who... During the late 1600s and early 1700s, he circumnavigated the world three times. And he not only plundered Spanish shipping um, and the colonies in the Americas, but he also inspired writers and scientists over the coming decades. In his day, he was famous throughout much of England. Um, he was the world's first travel writer and is also a natural historian. And his books recounted not just tales of daring, but also of careful observation and the study of amazing, distant, exotic lands. Today, however, he's little remembered, but he has contributed over a thousand words to English, so a little bit of him lives on in our language each day. And this man is... William Dampier. William's exact date of birth is unknown, but he was baptised 5th of September 1651 in the village of East Coker in Somerset. His parents, George and Anne, they were tenant farmers, but he did receive a reasonably good education, learning Latin and arithmetic. Uh, however, when he was only seven, his father died, and he was orphaned at 14 when plague killed his mother. He would become an apprentice to a shipmaster in Weymouth, and during that time he travelled to France and Newfoundland, where he found he really disliked the cold climate. And you see, he never really goes anywhere cold again after that, or well, not to the same level. Dambia's nautical education would continue as in the 1670s at age just 19 he sailed from london still heavily suffering from the effects of the great fire just a few years previous um, and he went on a warm voyage and a long one all the way to java on an east indian man called john and martha that's the name of the ship <laughs> nice um, and then he would join the royal navy in 1672 um, and then with the outbreak of the third dutch war he served under Sir Edward Sprague aboard the Royal Prince, where one of his shipmates would be the future pirate William Kidd. However, he fell ill, and in August 1673, he actually watched the last engagement of the war from a hospital ship, and it took him several months to recover. But by April of the next year, he was aboard another ship called the Content. This time, he was going to sail to Jamaica to work on a sugar plantation, having accepted a seasonal offer from Colonel William Hellyer, who was the squire of East Corker and his father's landlord. I think that you pronounced um, Colonel William Hellyer wrong. Hellyer! Hellyer. (laughs) (laughs) He was worried that when he was going to go on this vessel, um, all the way across the Atlantic, so he's only, what, 19 or something at the time, um, he thought that he might be sold as an indentured servant. And do you know what they are? No. So it's basically somebody kind of buys you as a servant or an employee for a set period. So it's not quite like slavery, but it isn't really much better. So you'd have agents, and they would roam the streets of London looking for drunks or vulnerable people, and then they'd sign them up, uh, get them aboard a ship, and they'd be sailing away before they could protest. 
And then once you reached America, wherever you're traveling, um, you'd be sold and to a new owner. Your new employers, they would basically have control over your lives and they often extended the indenture period for whatever reason they wanted just to keep keep ownership of you really. Hell yeah provided Dampier with supplies for the voyage on the understanding that he would work in exchange for what had been given uh, but no formal agreement had been written up regarding the duration of the terms. So uh, Dampier was a little bit suspicious about what's going on and Hell yeah's agents actually tried to get him to sign an, an indenture and they complained that William Dampier has been very extravagant after he demanded he be provided with paper, ink, quills, soup, soap, nutmeg and sugar for the sea voyage. And Dampier started protesting at this, but other passengers joined in, probably fearing the same fates so that they can be indentured as well. Um, one of them was a doctor and he was travelling with a young boy. But it was discovered that this young boy was actually a woman and his mistress. And now all this commotion aboard the ship, which they're seeing down the Thames at the moment... Um, it attracted the attention of customs officials and uh, Hellyer's agents, um, they gave up on their attempts to do what they're trying to do. Um, and one of them, he was called Rex Rock, which is a great name. Uh, is that as good as Hellyer though? This is going to be a name rating podcast. <laughs> and um, he actually drew up a fake marriage certificate for the doctor and he aged it by robbing on a shoe. Anyway, with that drama over, the content reached Jamaica by the end of June. Now, the capital of Jamaica is called Port Royal, and it was known as a haven for pirates and ill behaviour. One cleric was so disgusted by what he saw, he left on the same ship as he'd arrived, saying, The town is the Sodom of the New World. The majority of its population, pirates, cutthroats, whores, and some of the vilest persons in the whole of the world. I just think he gave it a chance, really. I mean, if you got to know the people there... Now, it was a thriving port and it's capable of holding hundreds of ships full of all different types of commodities. Now, Dampier, he wasn't staying at Port Royal, but instead he travelled inland to the plantation where he'd worked. Back in England, he'd impressed Colonel William Hellyer with his knowledge and he expected to be given a prominent role in the sugar plantation by its manager, William Whaley. They're all called William. Now, Whaley, he had different ideas, fearing that Dampier had actually been sent as a spy to report on him and he suggested that maybe he should learn the trade of boiling sugar. Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. But to do that, he would have to indenture himself to Whaley for a year. Now, Dampier refused, but after a couple of months, he was released with six weeks' wages because they just did not get on. Um, but Dampier, he found it impossible for work to come by as Whaley told the other plantation owners that he was too lofty to be useful and he was a self-conceited young man that understands little or nothing. There may be shades of truth here. Not that he knows nothing, quite the opposite in fact, but rather that he thought maybe a little bit too highly of his knowledge. So Dampier not being able to find work uh, would next join a vessel sailing under a Captain Hudzel for the Bay of Campeche <laughs> to collect logwood. Do you know what logwood is? Um, obviously it's Homomatazillum Campachianum. So for those non-Latin speakers... It's actually a tree that's native to southern Mexico, and it's a really important source for dyes. And it's nicknamed bloodwood, because when you cut it, it bleeds red sap like blood. And it's actually used to make purple dyes. So do you remember back in episode 21 where we spoke about different dyes? Purple was a really expensive colour, wasn't it? Because you only got it from brushing up sea snails. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> One tonne of logwood would fetch about £110 in London in the 1670s, and today that's nearly £15,000. After trading with the logwooders, 
Hodsell began the return trip to Jamaica, but they were pursued by two Spanish ships. And the Spanish weren't exactly happy with the British and the other nations getting in on the logwood trade. After all, the Pope had given them all these lands as their own in the treaties of Tordesillas, where, remember, they divided up the well between Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. Luckily, a change in wind directions allowed Dampier and Co. to escape. But he wasn't particularly impressed with the Captain Hudsell, and with good reason, because they were actually running low on food and water, and they just had two barrels of rotting beef left. So it didn't last very long in the heat. And uh, he wrote that they'd make a stew, which uh, did not stink, yet it was very unsavoury and black, without the least sign of fat in it. So not particularly great food aboard. Mm. Now, despite um, the troubles, Dampier did find time to study the local wildlife as they drifted between the various small islands, and he wrote... The man of war, as it was called by the English, is about the bigness of a kite, and its shape like it, but black, and the neck is red. It lives on fish, yet never lights on the water, but soars aloft like a kite, and when it sees its prey, it flies down, head foremost, to the water's edge. Very swiftly takes its prey out of the sea with its bill, and immediately mounts again as swiftly never touching the water with its bill. And he also described how the man of war birds, which today we call frigate birds, terrorised boobies. And I mean birds, OK? <laughs> I have seen a man of war fly directly at a booby and give it one blow which has caused it to cast up a large fish and the man of war flying directly down after it has taken the fish in the air before it reached the water. And they did make it back to Jamaica where they sold their cargo... But Dampier was seen on his next adventure, this time to join the Logwooders as one of their own, as he saw it as a good way to make money. Um, and he purchased the required equipment and was soon back in the Terminus Lagoon. In February 1676, the camp consisted of about 270 men, including Henry Avery, who would go on to be one of the most successful pirates ever. So I think you know that, don't you? Know? I've even heard of that name, yeah. Yeah. Now, logwooding, it sounds like really hard work because they spend a lot of their day standing in water. There's a quote from um, Dampier's book here. Some felled trees, others saw and cut them into convenient logs, and one chips off the sap. When the tree is so thick that, after being logged, it remains too great a burden for one man, we blow it up with gunpowder. And there's little else to do there, so there's no towns, and they were alone, except for the alligators and occasional attacks from the Spanish. Now, each Saturday, they go out and hunt wild cattle and pigs, and Dampier wrote... The cattle in this country are large and fat in February, March and April. At other times of the year, they're fleshy, not fat, yet sweet enough. When they have killed a beef, they cut it into four quarters and take out all the bones. Each man makes a hole in the middle of his quarter, just big enough for his head to go through, then puts it on like a frock and trudgeth home. And if he chances to tire, he cuts them off and flings it away. So they are wearing a meat dress. I mean, got there before Lady Gaga. (laughs) And it sounds like they could have a really good barbecue with this. And in fact... The logwooders did have barbecues, but the words at the time just meant like a raised wooden frame or platform on which they'd sleep. Dampier introduced a lot of words to English, including avocado, breadfruit, cashew, catamaran, chopsticks, posse, settlement, sapper, swampy, thundercloud, snug, tortilla, and a thousand more. Yeah, amazing. I need to make a wrap just with those words. You do. I'm Especially as there's tortilla in there. <laughs> Is that a wrap? Uh-huh. <laughs> When Dampier was there, he'd find time to explore, and he'd describe porcupines, turtles, lizards, sloths, 
and monkeys that scattered their urine and dung about him. Nice. They, they were howler monkeys, I think, and they would, like, chuckle there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for some reason, I thought he said donkeys. And then I was thinking, wait, there's a monkey that throws poo as well. But he did actually say monkeys. I anyway, did say, well, I hope yeah. I did. <laughs> he said about armadillos that they tasted very sweet, much like land turtle. He also wrote about lines of marching ants that took hours to pass and giant spiders whose fangs the men would use as toothpicks. In a more gruesome episode, he described a time when he had this big boil on his leg and it became really painful. Um, and after several days, he squeezed it and uh, two small white worms spurted out that had the bigness of his quill. Mm-hmm. And they also had three rows of black short hairs. So even then, he was describing so much detail what's going on. I'm just imagining him, like, screaming. It's like, ah, it really hurts. But he's just telling someone to write this whilst he's screaming. He's like, ah, they have three hairs. Yeah, oh, I reckon he's squeezing worms. one hand and jotting it down with the other. <laughs> and, uh, oh, so. and he's got some of the juice smeared on his paper now as well. Yeah, keep all the evidence. Yep. <laughs> so it must have seemed like a really, like, like a different world to his readers uh, back home in England. But all this hard work was to be for nothing, as in June a hurricane struck and destroyed the camp, and Dampier's description would be the first accurate account, complete with the tide retreating before the surge, and he'd also be the first person to recognise that hurricanes and typhoons are actually the same phenomenon. In the weeks after the storm, the Logwooders took refuge on Beef Island, so I reckon that's where the wild cattle lived, Mm -hmm. and they were near a population of local Indians, and he wrote of them that they are... A very harmless sort of person, kind to any strangers, even to the Spaniards, by whom they are so much kept under that they are worse than slaves. This makes them very melancholy and thoughtful. Sometimes when they are imposed on by the Spanish, beyond their ability to bear, they will march off whole towns, men, women and children. He noted how they only killed the older wild cattle and not um, the young, by which means they always preserve their stock entire compared to the folly of the English and the French who kill them without distinction. Sadly, with no money and all his belongings washed away, his options were limited. So Dampier ended up joining a band of buccaneers. So do you know what buccaneers are? Right, a type of pirate or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're basically pirates. I think it referred to something else originally. And they certainly seemed like interesting company. Here's a note taken from... One of the books I used for research called A Pirate of Exquisite Mind. Their garments were encrusted with blood from all the skinning and butchering and stained with marrow, which they called their brandy, and they sucked from the bones as they worked. They coated their exposed skin with lard as protection against the innumerable insects that bit and sucked the blood from bare flesh. So it's a real ragtag bunch of like hard and toughened men. Mm-hmm. I think the, the scariest thing that I took from that is that you said they have bear flesh. Bears. Like, gurgur, grizzly bears. Oh, blimey, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they're hairy. It's terrifying. After spending about a year with the buccaneers and taking part in some minor raids in the Spanish, then a brief stint back with the Logwooders, Dampier returned to Jamaica and then to England in August 1678. And guess what he did next? Um, I'm not sure. He got married to a woman called Judith, who was a lady-in-waiting for the Duchess of Grafton. And guess what he did next? Um, what, divorce? Right. Oh. By spring of 1679, he left Judith 
for a short trading trip to Jamaica. But how short? Round the world short. 12 years short. <laughs> he had, however, purchased a small state in Dorset. So back in Jamaica, he met a trader by the name of Hobby, who invited him on a short uh, voyage to trade with the Mosquito Indians. And mosquito always, Indians? Yeah, the Mosquito Coast. And always curious to see more of the world, he gladly accepted the offer, and off they sailed. Now, during the voyage, they encountered a buccaneer fleet of nearly a dozen ships and 500 men. And all of Hobby's men, they decided to be much more exciting to join them. So uh, obviously, Dampier had to do the same. So finally, we might get to some piracy, which is the whole point of this episode, as it is International Pirate Day. Arr. Very good. Um, now, after surviving a storm, the pirates decided to attack the Spanish town of Portobello on the Atlantic coast. Now, each year, there'd be a fleet that would sail from Spain to collect treasure that had been carried across uh, to Portobello um, from the South and Central American Empire. So they'd bring it up onto the Atlantic coast from more the Pacific side. And this was a really great occasion, and there'd be merchants selling spices, silks, gold, silver, and all different types of commodities. It was also really hot, and the air was filled with illness, and hundreds of people would die each year. But it didn't stop the parching, so it was like just a hive of activity. So in early February, Dampier, led by Captain Coxon, set out with 250 men in canoes, and they made landfall six days' march from Portobello. And they'd also been joined by 80 French privateers. And creeping through the dense jungle, they approached the undefended rear of the town. And then on the 7th of February, they began their attack, when a small boy cried out, Tom's Christians, the English are coming! Can you do that in Spanish, please? Um, Espanol. To arms, Christians. The English are coming. The best Spanish accent I've ever had. I got worse with every word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that's not meant to be Spanish anymore. I, I bet you're not even going to cut it out. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping. Anyway, back to our story. So, assaulting rapidly and with the full benefit of surprise, well, almost surprise, the Buccaneers quickly took the town with minimum casualties. And the Spanish, they did say they killed 30. However, the Buccaneers said there was only five or six had been injured. So how many do you reckon? A hundred. hundred? Oh, okay. There's a lot of their 250 people dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, during two days of plundering, they took all that they could and laid it onto small boats or carried it overland to a rendezvous point. All the time they're dodging musket fires. There are, like, different forts and things along the uh, along the coast there. The day after they left, there was a group of 700 Spanish soldiers. They entered the town, but they were too late. So uh, they burned an Indian village in reprisal. Which isn't very nice, is it? Mm-hmm. And for his part, Dampier received 100 pieces of eight, which is enough to keep a pirate very happy. But... <laughs> you misspelled pirate. No, which is enough to keep a parrot very happy. <laughs> but pirates, no, pirates, they want more. <laughs> now, the local Kuna Indians, they had actually been encouraging the Buccaneers for a while to cross the Isthmus of Panama and attack the Spanish settlements and fleets in the South Seas, which we now know as the Pacific. So if you actually look at that bit of the land bridge where uh, Panama is, you've got the Atlantic on the north and the Pacific on the south. So that's where you've got the North Seas and the South Seas. Now, the route is really difficult and dangerous, um, and there'd be no successful attacks there for nearly a decade since the pirate Henry Morgan had successfully raided the Spanish in, in 1671. And there'd actually been two French attempts since then, and they both failed, I, I guess, retreating. Yeah, yeah. They'll run away. Oh, yeah. They'll run away. I, I have a YouTube channel. There we go. We'll just plug that in the middle. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, good curiosity, plug. The Curiosity of Gaming. There we yeah, go. Nice. check it out, check it out. 
Um, now, Coxon, he understood the risks, but he also saw there was great opportunity here. And they had actually intercepted merchants' letters speaking of a uh, open door to the South Seas, and they feared a British attack, so they planned to uh, prey upon those fears. And to get across the Isthmus, uh, the Akuna would be their guides, leading them across this really difficult land. Dampier wrote, Being here at anchor, many of the Indians, both men and women, came to see us. Some brought plantains, others fruits and venison, to exchange with us for beads, needles, knives, and any trifling bauble whereof they stand in need. But what they most chiefly covert is axes and hatchets to fell timber. The men here go almost naked, having only a sharp and a hollow tip made either of gold, silver, or bark, in which to um <laughs> into which they thrust their privy members. Yeah, special penis wear. Yeah. Um they wear as an ornament in their noses. A golden or silver plate in the shape of a half moon, which, when they drink, they hold up. They paint them themselves, sometimes with streaks of black, as the women do in like manner with red. These have in their noses a pretty thick ring of gold or silver, and for clothing they cover themselves with a blanket. They're generally well-featured women. Among them I saw several fairer than the fairest of Europe, with their hair like the finest flax. Of these it's reported that they can see far better in the dark than in the light. So the fair people of which he wrote here, they're actually albinos, and the Kunas people, they have one of the highest numbers of albinos in the world. We can also see a description there, how it's amazing. There's, they're not wearing much clothing, so they seem in one way poor, but they've also got, they're wearing gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's again been really descriptive. So if you're a reader back in England, and you've never kind of gone anywhere it's amazing isn't it maybe they don't value the gold and silver the same way over 300 pirates rowed ashore forming into companies led by various captains each with their own flag as they set off in early april 1680 if you'd grown up in england spent many months or years at sea and being led into these deep dark hot and humid jungles surrounded by strange sounds giant snakes and persistent swarms of insects and the only hope of survival are people unlike any you've encountered before they're so natural and comfortable in this environment, the complete opposite of you as they effortlessly navigate what you only see as this dark, dense and chaotic jungle. But as one buccaneer wrote, that which often spurs men onto the undertaking of the most difficult adventure is that sacred hunger of gold. And this was gold that they saw the Kuna casually wearing. That's probably more than they'd ever dreamt of in their lives. And it was also what they were there to plunder from the Spanish. And Dampier writes several times of his desire to find um, treasure and riches. So far from having to uh, go along with these buccaneers when Hobbiesmen deserted, he was here for adventure too. Now the path, as they started going up through the mountains, it got really narrow and steep and it was only one man could go at a time. And um, they eventually arrived at a Kuna settlement where they were met by a local king and they ate and they drank and they partied. And apparently the Kuna really loved the buccaneers' drums. However, the king told how his eldest daughter had been kidnapped by the Spaniards. Um, so he sent 250 Indians along with the buccaneers so that they could rescue her and enact revenge on the Spanish. And one of them was actually his son, and he was nicknamed King Golden Cap on account for this golden hat that he wore on his head. Where's this special penis piece? Oh, he's he's more important, so he gets to wear he gets clothes. More. Yeah. Nice. yeah. <laughs> um, as they travelled... 
deeper across the country, um, they would sometimes cross rivers up to 50 times a day, all the while trying to keep their provisions and guns dry and their gunpowder and everything. And even here, Dampier found time to record the patterns of the weather and the wind. He kept his notes dry by storing them in a large piece of bamboo. And as we're recording the 18th, it's actually International Bamboo Day. And he sealed this at both ends um, with some wax to keep it watertight. Now, do you remember when we made the paint and pigments? Mm-hmm. It's not a fast process, is it? Mm-mm. So whenever Dampier wanted to write, he'd have to do something similar. So it wasn't just a case of picking up a pen and writing. One of the observations he made when he was crossing the isthmus was to disprove a common and what's really odd to us theory of the day. And that's that the water of the seas actually flowed beneath the land of Central America. So they flowed from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So they thought it was like a, a natural bridge. And Dambia's work on ocean currents and wind patterns, they were the most complete of the day. He was also the first person to fully map the global trade winds and the first to identify that the winds affect the currents. So do you remember when we visited the Cotty Sark? Um, you played that little game where you had to sail back to England in record time? Mm-hmm. And you followed the trade winds, didn't you? It wasn't the most direct route. We did follow the trade winds for most of it, and then we sort of cut across. But yeah. Exactly, yeah. So you, you might go all the way across the Atlantic and then sail back across it again later, so that was actually the quickest way. Mm-hmm. So mapping and understanding these global rhythms of the oceans was essential to the continual growth and exploration of the world. And Dampier played a really important part of that during his um, voyages around the world. And a really big thank you to Alex from Casting Lots podcast for our day at and Greenwich. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to our story. Eventually they crossed the Isthmus and were within striking distance of the town of Santa Maria. Sneaking close and laying low, they spent the night waiting for sunrise and their raid to begin. But they were woken by drums and gunfire from the town. Somehow the Spanish had learnt of the attack. Rushing the town, they quickly took it as the Spanish surrendered, but many of the prominent citizens who they'd hoped to ransom had already fled with their valuables. Even worse, they'd missed a ship that carried 140 kilograms of gold by three days. Gold worth millions in today's money. Oh, she got it. Mm. (laughs) They also found the king's daughter, but she was pregnant. Mm. The furious Cunas rounded up the Spanish captives and took them into the jungles where they speared them to death. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's the right answer. Now, frustrated at their limited successes, but also nervous about being so vulnerable in the case, they decided on their next move. It would be to attack Panama. That city being the receptacle of all plate, jewels and gold that is dug out of the mountains of Potsy and Peru. Now, there is a story here of how a group of the buccaneers, they got separated from the main party and they came across some shipwrecked Spaniards and both hungry and desperate, they actually ate together. Should have spared them to death. Well, that's what the Indians wanted to do. Oh. Uh, because when they inquired who they were, the buccaneers said, we told them they were wankers. Beep! <laughs> Which is the name they commonly give to the Spaniards in their own language. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the root of the word originally. Mm. Um, yeah, so the, the Indians wanted to kill them, but when Ring Rose who is one of Dampier's friends and also right about his adventures, he managed to save the Spanish. Um, however, one was kept as a slave by the Indians. 
and this is just as well, but it's not long afterwards, the small party came across a larger group of Spanish, and they would have surely killed Ring, Rose and Co. in revenge for the attack on Santa Maria. But the Spanish slave who they kept with them uh, told how merciful Ring Rose had been, and they were spared, and they seemed caught up with the main party. So good job they didn't spare them. Wow. Okay. 23rd of April, and Panama is in sight. Now, the city's still under construction after it being sacked by Captain Morgan in 1671, but still no easy target. The Buccaneers, they didn't have any large ships under their command, and they saw out sure there were five large Spanish vessels, and then another three ships, uh, barks, they were sailing their way. So battle commenced, and it would last three hours. The smaller, more nimble pirate ships, which they were just, which they were rowing, they were able to avoid the Spanish attacks and striking at Admiral Barnahuna's ship that actually managed to jam its rudder. Then they killed him and the pilot and slaughtered two thirds of the crew taking the ship. Then another spears. They stabbed them with spears. Oh, this is the Buccaneers as well. They're muskets. Ugh, they stabbed them with muskets. On another, the Peralta, two powder magazines exploded, killing many of the crew, and then the third ship fled the scene. So the Buccaneers decided to assault the five anchored ships, find them undefended. Now the largest was the 400-ton La Santissima Trinidad, and it had been holed and set on fire, as the Spanish didn't want their captured. However, they managed to save the ship, and then they renamed it the Trinity. And of the other ships, they burnt two and took two. Mm-hmm. So a bit of pirate action going on here now. And despite their success... Captain Coxon, he had been accused of being a coward. And another captain, Captain Sharp, wrote, This night, Captain Coxon came aboard my vessel to see if he could work upon me. I would by no means condescend to any action so dirty and inhumane as to leave poor English souls to the mercy of a bloodthirsty people. So he departed this night and carried away with him the best of our doctors and medicines. So he basically left with the doctors, uh, Captain Coxon. And he left uh, 20 of his injured um, buccaneers behind for these guys to look after. They didn't dare to do a full attack on Panama, but they did write to the governor, who asked from whom they had their commission, to which the pirates replied, We will bring our commissions on the muzzles of our guns, at which time he should read them as plain as the flame of the gunpowder should make them. So, threatening talk. Mm -hmm. It didn't work, though, so the pirates departed. (laughs) Um, and they spent the next few months sailing up and down the coast in a series of mostly unsuccessful raids. And one thing I like, though, is that Dampier will quite often mention them drinking chocolate before battle. And it's so odd with how we see hot chocolate today, something nice and cosy and relaxing. But here's mm-hmm. these really tough men about to... Just chugging the chocolate like warm energy drink for the battle. Yes. It's good for scurvy, apparently. Mm. There's one story that it was raining so heavily that as they were drinking their chocolate... On the deck of the ship, it, the cops were filling up faster than they could drink them. <laughs> um, raining chocolate? Oh, I wish. No, <laughs> just raining water. Okay. <laughs> now, the Spanish all up and down the coast were alerted to their presence. So, as I said, most of the raids failed and um, most of the treasure that they hoped to find had either been moved away or hidden somewhere. And on one larger raid on La Serena... They tried ransoming the town, which they captured for 95,000 pieces of eight. However, the Spanish opened the irrigation sluices and and flooded the town rather than uh, have it taken. So the pirates burnt down what remained in revenge. Ringrose wrote of one daring covert attack by the Spanish. They blew up a horse's hide like a bladder, and upon this float a man ventured to swim from the shore and come under the stern of our ship. 
Being there, he had found oakum and brimstone and other combustible matter between the rudder and the stern post. Having done this, he fired it with a match, so that in a small time, our rudder was on fire and the ship all in smoke. So needing to repair and careen their vessels, they sailed for Han Fernandez, which is an island off the coast of Chile in the Pacific. And it was now December. And having very little to show for their year of raiding, they elected a new leader. And we spoke, I think, in a previous episode about pirate democracy, didn't we? And how oh, they yeah. would... I remember that. Yeah, they would uh, elect their leaders and things. So next year, on the 12th of January, they needed to make a fast departure when Spanish warships were sighted. But they left behind a mosquito engine and he was all alone on the islands. But guess what his name was? I bet it's William. It is William. <laughs> how is everybody called William? Even the... Local uh, Indians are called William. <laughs> but you might know him better as Man Friday, as it's believed that he was the inspiration. And he'd actually be rescued by Dampion Co. three years later in 1684. And uh, he's amazing. Uh, Dampion wrote how he had evaded the Spanish over all those years, because they knew him to be on the island, but he managed to hide from them. And after he'd run out of ammunition, um, he heated up his gun so he could use the metal to make knives and saws and hooks and he'd use um, seal skin for fishing line so loads of seals on the island but there's also loads of goats as well which the Spanish had left there years before and his hut was lined with their skins uh, but when he saw the English ships arriving after so many years alone um, he killed three goats and dressed them with cabbage to treat us when we came ashore and um, he was greeted by another mosquito engine called Robin and he threw himself flat on his face at his feet then they hugged and they embraced and then William threw himself on his face and uh, it's kind of the reason that they had and uh, Dampier wrote of this We stood with pleasure to behold the surprise and the tenderness which was exceedingly affectionate on both sides and when their ceremonies of civility were over we also drew near each of us embracing him he was overjoyed to see many of his old friends come hither yeah it's really touching isn't it and it also shows how um close they must have come like the buccaneers and um like the local peoples Mm -hmm. it didn't seem like there's much judgment there back to 1681 (laughs) after more failed attacks and the death of their new commander tempers were really getting frayed and the relationship stretched to breaking point so another group of buccaneers uh split off and went their own way and dampier I went with the group who decided to return to the Isthmus of Panama. So I'm going to quickly skip over a lot of Dampier's life now, because we're getting the feel of his pirating and his pirate life. So they reached the um, Isthmus, and there was another difficult overland crossing, and they had to deal with this really awkward Cunard chief, so they ended up appealing to his wife. And uh, Dampier wrote, One of our men took a sky-coloured petticoat out of his bag and put it on the wife. He was so much pleased with the present that she immediately began to chatter to her husband and soon brought him to better humour. <laughs> so he ended up helping them. Uh, yeah, so they crossed over and reached the Atlantic side. Now he, Dambier here had spent some time in Virginia in 1682 and 3. He had then joined a Captain John Cook on the Revenge. And then they had sailed to Africa where he'd see flamingos on the Cape Verde Islands of which he wrote a really rich description that spans several pages. And he noted that their tongues were fit for a prince's table. They're so delicious. Then in 1684, they'd sail back around Cape Horn to the Pacific, where they'd do more raiding of towns and shipping. And they'd stop off at the Galapagos Islands to repair and refit their ship. And here he wrote, 
about how tame and abundant the animals were. And of the tortoises, he said that they were so sweet that no pullet eats more pleasantly. Although another a group of French buccaneers who arrived a year later, they would comment on how many tortoises the English had eaten. Dampier, he also wrote the first English description of the island's flora and fauna, and he compared green turtles from here with others he saw in his travels, and he'd look at the differences. He was the first person to write of subspecies of animals and postulate that their location and their local environment influenced their development. So far from just being this man who went around raiding, as we've just been talking about, is such a keen and acute observer, and he was really trying to understand the world around him. And Darwin would actually take Dampier's books with him on uh, his voyage on the Beagle. But the pirates, they uh, they next planned to capture the Spanish Manila Galleon. Now, this was a really important ship that would carry precious cargoes of silk and spices and gold and silver and more uh, between the Philippines and the Americas, so crossed right across the Pacific. So a big journey in those days. However, they'd fail in their attempt at doing this. Um, but we will talk about the Manila Galleons again in a future Guernsey Greats episode. Oh, yeah. But after just missing out on this great treasure, they sailed across the Pacific, which was a really difficult journey because they wanted to then go raid um, around the Philippines and everywhere. And then Dampier had spent several years exploring the East Indies and Thailand, the South China Seas, and they'd even see the coast of Australia. And he spent some time as a gunner in an East India Company pepper factory in Sumatra. And that's where I first um, discovered Dampier whilst researching our pepper episode. Episode 36. Thank you. Listen to that after this one. <laughs> yes. Um, and he would eventually return to England in the summer of 1691. So I'm not sure what his wife Judith thought about his uh, short trading trip. <laughs> not that he'd stay that long though, because he'd soon command a Royal Navy expedition to Australia, then he'd get court-martialed, and then go on even more privateering adventures, sail around the world two more times, and of course publish his famous books, most famous of which is called A New Voyage Around the World. And I feel really bad for skipping over these parts of his life, but it's Pirate Day, it's our pirate episode, so that's what I've concentrated on, but also talking about how is this remarkable man he should be better known than he is R. R. and his his great work a new voyage around the world was published in 1697 and his writings that actually made him a bit of a celebrity so even on later voyages where he wasn't the captain the papers would write of Dampier's voyage and his return and that he's still alive because there's all this hype and excitement around him and his books, they brought the wonders of a strange and exotic world to the masses. So this is a time when voyages of piracy were starting to be replaced by ones of science. So Dampier, he straddled this change and his rich and colourful writings would really inspire and excite the imaginations. And he gave the clearest and most vivid picture of the wider world. But it wasn't just adventure, it was incredibly detailed studies and innovative thinking and learning and observing and understanding the world, which I, I hope we've managed to touch on. And then during all this time, he kept his notes and his inks and his writing safe and dry and unspoilt in his uh, bamboo tube, going on adventures that we can't even dream of today. He also wrote about many of the people who he met. And to the modern ear, some of his descriptions might feel a little bit dated, but underneath there seems to be a true respect and fascination there. He wasn't particularly impressed with um, the Australian Aboriginals, but I think that was more due to a language barrier and that it was like such an alien world of these people meeting for the first time. He also 
seemed to despise how colonial rule degraded local people and took away some of their freedoms. So you saw real virtue in how they lived their lives and respected nature and the kind of the simplicity of their life. And some of this might have come down to his experiences with the Royal Navy and also among the pirates, with the former being very strict and quick to punish, and the latter more reasoned and democratic in the running of their ships. So you might see that reflected in the different cultures and societies which she saw. Now, Dampier, he would inspire Darwin, Daniel Defoe, Jonathan Swift, Alexander von Holbolt, um used his writing when he was making his encyclopedia 200 years later. He was even invited to talk at the Royal Society. Um, and his writings were the best meteorological observations of their day, and the accuracy led them to being used for a long time afterwards. I mean, they were praised by Captain Cook, the famous one, and uh, even Lord Nelson. Writing in the 1800s, Admiral James Burnley said, It is not easy to name another voyager or traveller who has given more useful information to the world, to whom the merchant and the mariner are so indebted, or who has communicated his information in a more unembarrassed way and intelligible manner. Yes, it's high praise, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But at times, it seems he could also be an awkward man. See, he wasn't a natural leader, and he struggled when he was in charge of the Raybok for the Royal Navy. And he often wrote disparagingly of the mistakes made by others who uh, should have taken and followed his advice. And he also abandoned his wife for years. Um, and he also very rarely wrote about his personal feelings. He was, like all people, flawed. Even me and you, Anton. <laughs> flawed? Yeah. Me? No. And it's maybe his record with the Royal Navy and his legacy as a pirate that caused him over time to be forgotten and not celebrated for all of his achievements. So I think it's too easy to see things in black and white and then take the bad instances and use those to judge his character rather than also look at all the amazing achievements that he had. So yes, Dampier dreamt of gold and he partook in brutal pirate raids, but there was also no other way that he could sate his appetite for the curiosity of the world. I think that he gave the world more than he ever took from it. He died in March 1751, age 63 in debt. His place of burial is unknown. I think that's really sad. Mm-hmm. And it's an unmarked grave, does that mean? I think it's on, yeah, it might be unmarked, yeah. yeah. So I don't know where he is. For somebody who, think of who he inspired and how celebrated those people were, but because he came from a rougher background, maybe, and he, he did do some terrible things in his time, he wasn't really remembered in the same way. I hope through this episode, people will go on and read more about him. So some excellent biographies of him, mm-hmm. which we'll have in the show we'll, notes. Well, we should change the word and how people view him with our tens of listeners now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tens of We have changed the world. So what do you think of him then? Um, I, I quite like him. I, I have no idea how people don't know about him so much. Oh, they should know a lot more about him. I think so. It's very important. And I want to look at all the words that he introduced. Yeah. um, Because I I haven't seen all of them yet. And like I said, I I might might make a rap. (laughs) Maybe. I think he's a really interesting character. It's sad he's not better known. And when I was reading the book and his biographies and saw that he was, uh, yeah, don't know where he's buried, I found that really sad. But he was, in a way, a bit of a wanderer throughout his life, maybe. Um, But amazing amazing kind of curious man who 
thought so like very intelligent um despite all his pirate days as well so um i'd love to touch more on his life in the future because i feel a little bit bad racing through those uh later years of his life mm, maybe another episode anyway that is william dampier very interesting man but if you liked that and you like our podcast you can leave us a review Yes, we shouldn't be forgotten like he is. No. Yeah, so please review we us. We shouldn't so... be buried in an unmarked grave. We should be the, well, the hosts of the Curse of a Child. You're going to have that engraved upon your uh, tombstone. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so please review us on um, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you are listening to this, please. Um, also, speaking podcasts, please check out Casting Lots, which mm-hmm. is a cannibalism podcast, which we were interviewed by, and where we uh, got to recreate a little bit of cannibalism with them. Um, yeah, so check that out, which should be out next month. Exciting. Yes. And where can you find us? Um, everywhere. <laughs> Twitter. Curie Charpod. Instagram. Curie Charpod. Facebook. Curie Charpod. We got a YouTube channel, I guess. <laughs> On YouTube, your, well, your YouTube channel is the big one. Yeah. At time of recording, two hundred fifty-seven subscribers. That's impressive. And uh, you last made a German World War Two Tiger One tank in Minecraft, didn't you? Complete mm-hmm. with history and facts, which people love. I know, I know, I am amazing. You know, you, you know when you said I was flawed earlier. I still don't believe it. Oh, you're flawed. Believe me. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> well, you got some of my genes. So you must be. <laughs> because I'm a very flawed individual uh, <laughs> anyway um, thank you very much for listening and enjoy Pirate Day and um, ah my hearties Arr. shiver my timbers you landlubbers oh I got two facts there shiver my timbers means like splintering boat or something my boat's splintering and that we only do the accent because an actor in um, a film he he just had an accent like that I think he was had like a farm he did yeah that's what uh, sort of accent farmer. and it, the pirates didn't really sound like that probably actually that splintering of boats that reminds me when I was reading the book uh, it's the best descriptions I've had of people travelling around the world um, in like the 1600s and when they went up to careen their ships that they would talk of how they could basically put their fists sometimes through the hull of the ship because they'd been so eaten away by worms. And I would just picture this horrible kind of um, sponge with all these worms and stuff, and it's disgusting. Oh my, you've scarred our listeners. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so uh, check out the show notes where you can find links to all the research here, and please, please go read more about William Dumpier. And uh, thank you, and goodbye, and we love you. We always love you. We do, we love our listeners. Review us. Oh my god. R Tom's Christians, the English are coming! <laughs>